This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Kate Mildenhall, welcome to Better Reading. Ah, oh, thanks so much for having me, Cheryl. An experienced podcaster. Tell me a little bit about your podcast before we start talking about your book. Okay, so I co-host the First Time podcast with my dear writer friend, Catherine Collette, whose first yes. book, The Helpline, came out a couple of years ago. And we started it basically because Catherine kept asking me all these questions like, you know, how do you organise a launch? Or what do I do with a copy edit? Or am I supposed to send, you know, a card my publisher on launch day? Like, what is this deal? So we decided it'd be fun to, to talk about that and record it. And it was all for a bit of a laugh at the start. And we wanted to interview Australian writers. I mean, let's be honest, the best part of this gig, right, is talking to writers and stealing all of the insides of their brains. So we kind of begged people at the start. We were both students at RMIT Uni, so we begged kind of alumni to come and talk to us. And now, of course, we've got, as you would, you know, publishers sending us books and people wanting to be on the podcast. And it's just been... Oh, so much fun. I've learned so much from it, but also the little community that you build then so that people are like, oh, you know, oh, you guys going okay in lockdown or, you know, I feel I people especially who feel like they know the story of this book that's coming out now because I've, you know, banged on about it and whinged about it for three years. So I really like that. It's been fun. Do you know what I like about podcasts is the intimacy. Yeah, because I'm, I'm a, I mean, you know, I record this podcast and hey, I think I've got a better job than you because I just record podcasts. <laughs> right? I don't have to write a book. You don't have to do the book writing too. <laughs> no, I don't have to do that. And I'm a big podcast listener, but I do enjoy the intimacy. You know, I know what listeners say when they say, me that you know they feel as though they know me people send me really heartfelt notes but I'm the same I feel as though I know people really well absolutely and I think that's what I mean you get used to it when you're on the kind of end of the microphone all the time and that kind of frankness with which you talk to people but I think it's sometimes what guests leave and they say I didn't mean to tell you all that but it's just, you know, it's you both in yeah. this really intimate conversation and then people say afterwards, oh, did I go a bit far then? But yeah. that's, of course, what listeners love as well, that feeling that they're just eavesdropping on a conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you give, oh, I mean, I think you have to give some of yourself away. I mean, that absolutely just, comes with the business, just like writing. Let me introduce you because extraordinary, Katie's a writer and a teacher who lives on the outskirts of Melbourne with her young family. She has taught in schools at RMIT University and the State Library Victoria. She's volunteered with teachers across borders in Cambodia. Her debut novel, uh, Skylarking, was published in 2006 and was long listed for the Voss Literary Prize 2017 and the Indie Book Awards 2017. As we just said, Kate also co-hosts a podcast, the First Time Podcast, which is all about the first time you publish a book. 
Kate's newest novel, which is why we're here today, is called The Mother Fault, will be out this month. Well, it's out now, isn't it? So I'm super excited about this. I feel that you are a ball of talent. Um, I really do. (laughs) Thank you, Cheryl. That's lovely. (laughs) When I read my research notes on you, and I'm lucky enough to have somebody write them for me, I just thought, uh, 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 I'm gonna, I think I'm going to feel underwhelmed <laughs> in terms of my experience and expertise. Gosh, look no. How much, look how much you've done. And you're fairly young. So firstly, talk to me about the mother fault. And then I want to go back because, you know, as you know, ours about the story and how you came of course, of course. So the mother fault as my second novel took a little longer than the first. So it's been about uh, four years <laughs> in the making. Busy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and really I wanted to go as far in the other direction as I possibly could from Skylarking. So Skylarking is historical fiction. The mother fault has variously been described as, as, you know, a literary thriller, dystopia, all kinds of things. So different direction. And The Mother Fault really is the story of Mim, who is a, a woman, a mother. She's been a geologist uh, in, in the past, but she's taken time off to raise her, her two kids, Essie and Sam, while her husband kind of takes the, the Guernsey to do the, the work. And when the novel opens, he has um, gone missing from, a, from an Indonesian gold mine where he's been working. And Mim doesn't know where he is. She contacts the department, who's now the governing body of this near future Australia, uh, to try and get some information. Hang on, I felt that it was very near. Uh, very near. Yeah. And, and nearer than- now, Cheryl, than when I intended it. Yeah. Than when I intended it. Too near. <laughs> yeah, too near. And, and you know, this is a society where everyone is now um, constantly surveilled. They've got chips uh, so that they can be geolocated at any stage. And, and basically the department kind of threaten Mim uh, that she must shelter in place, you know, stay in place uh, with her kids or they'll take her kids away from her, which is, of course, the ultimate threat to all parents, uh, and Mim decides to run for it. Uh, and what follows is kind of road trip, sailing adventure, as she tries to both find her husband and to, to keep her kids safe. I loved it. I loved, I loved her and I loved her energy and I loved the fact that she was the hero. And I thought it must be very like you, I think. She's got your energy. <laughs> tell me. So tell me, tell me, tell me. So you grew, you grew up in Melbourne. Yep. Talk to me about that. I grew up in Melbourne, not very far from where I live right now. And uh, with all the same, you know, girlfriends that I have right now and married a boy from high school, of course. Yeah which is the way sometimes things go out here in the sticks. I wanted to be a writer when I was at school. Um, I was good at writing. Yeah, Yeah, I was, you know, I wanted to, I had wonderful teachers. I was, you know, I wrote terrible poetry as everyone does in primary school. I filled journals. I was avid reader. My friends still laugh sometimes about how I, you know, a journal entry I found once, which was, you know, like, thank God mum took me to the library today. You know, like, (laughs) thank heavens for that. Um, So real big reader, adored writers, but also didn't, thought that the gap between me and being able to publish a book was just far too far. Did a bit of fangirling, wrote letters to authors, things like that, but didn't ever think that you could actually be a writer when you when you grew up. And what uh, happened, Cheryl? I'm going to interrupt you there. You might know this. I interviewed Holly Ringland on the... Oh, 
Do you know this story? Holly. No, I don't. Uh, so on the release of her book, The Lost Flowers, Lost Flowers Alice, of Alice Hart. Hart, yeah, and she told me at 12 years old, and that just reminded me what you were saying, she wrote to a publisher and said that her book is coming. <laughs> I love that. Don't you love that? I love that. Yeah, that's that so just good. reminded me of that, yeah. And that confidence, and I actually just, I posted a a picture this week of, you know, my author headshot in a book when I was published at 13 because I entered a competition um, that John Marsden ran with the Tomorrow When the War Began books and I was shortlisted and I was in this book that Dolly published and, you know, I just... It was still the most thrilling envelope opening, you know, when I pulled that out to say congratulations, you've been shortlisted. I just thought this is it, I've been made. But what happened is that I did, you know, I was good at it during high school and I did have, uh, you know, work published in, in anthologies and things like that and I was used to being good at it. And the first time I entered a, a competition in university, like a local writing competition, and I didn't hear anything. I didn't get shortlisted or nothing. I thought, oh, well, that's it then. I'm no, I'm no good at it. I'll give that up. Like, I'm not going to do that anymore. No, I was hurt and it was my first big rejection and I was like, stuff that. <laughs> and I didn't write again then for did 10 years. Did you check your junk mail? <laughs> yeah, I did. And, you know, it was what, as it should be, like I got way too big for my boots and I didn't, you know, I didn't like being edited and I, I just thought, as we do sometimes when we're young, that every golden word we write is has got its place there on the page so you know it took me a long time I wanted to to do the RMIT course that I ended up doing I wanted to do it in year 12 you know when I was leaving year 12 and my careers teacher said uh Kate smart girls don't do TAFE uh which was a terrible thing for her to say but I I did it so I went on and I did you know I flunked out of film after one year and I went and did teaching. My parents are both teachers. You know, I thought um, I never wanted to be a teacher, but of course I did and I and I love it. I did that. I travelled a bit. And then when my kids uh, were really young, when my second was just a baby, I enrolled to do the RMIT course again, part-time on maternity leave. And that's <laughs> And that's how Skylarking was published. Now, there's a common thread, and you probably know this because you've probably spoken to as much authors as I have. A lot of the female authors that I talk to start writing when they're, it's not that they're inspired by having a child, it's just no. that they have this time yep. on I their think, hands. I think time and and a real uh, visceral kind of bodily response to everything that's happening like you've got this small thing attached to you that you're that you're keeping alive I really did struggle I think it wasn't diagnosed at the time but with with postnatal anxiety I lost uh, two grandparents in the year that my first born was born and I just there was no way to communicate you know everything that was going on and and I think that's when I that's when I started writing and I read the most um I read a, a verse novel, The Sunlit Zone, by Lisa Jacobson, who had taught me at, at La Trobe Uni. She taught me English. And I read it one night, late one night while I was breastfeeding. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, that that is how I, I can express myself again. I can, I can write again. And I did this really short online poetry course with her and it just, the fire came back, like, mm. like fully, <laughs> fully it came back. Good. I want to hone in on that a bit because it's interesting. Like you, you thought you had postnatal stress or depression yeah. or whatever they call it, and 
you would be fatigued. You're nursing a baby. And as I said, a few authors have told me that, quite a few. And I wonder, firstly, my first reaction is, oh, my God, where do you get the energy from? Because if I don't get eight hours sleep every night, I can't function, right? And I'm saying most parents probably get four to five. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Now, so my brain would be a scramble. And I often, when I first started recording this podcast and I would hear these stories and I just think, where does it come from? But as time has gone on, not that I'm, you know, because I've listened to so many people talk about the writing purposes, not that I can write, but I have understood that a bit more because it's the separation, I think, of creating a space for yourself. Yeah, that's exactly, absolutely, Cheryl. And I think also because you're forced out, um, kind of physically out of, of the workforce and to take a step out of whatever your life has been, the, the busyness of it. And I wonder if this will happen after the after COVID as well to people, mm. is that you're kind of forced to take stock and you think, okay, well, what is it that I'm going to do with my days? Um, am mm. I going to return to work? Can I do that with the kids? You know, all those questions. And I think it's, it's that, that possibility too, where you think, okay, well, what if I do that crazy, risky, foolish thing? And I didn't even tell myself when I went back to RMIT, I told myself and anyone who asked me that I was going to um, really train up to be an editor so I could do educational editing kind of stuff and I could stay at home with the kids and, th- and that's what I could do. I couldn't even bear to say to anyone, you know, actually I think I might want to write a novel because that was just, you know, one couldn't admit to, you know, their kind of deepest, um, greatest desire and and, and fear so, and, and fear. fear because what if I fail mm. what if I fail Cheryl and mm. I think that's I mean we hold on to that fear the whole time don't we even mm. you know even today with a, a second book coming out into the world I'm still not convinced that I would ever be able to do it again <laughs> you yeah. know again I'm going to tell you something which probably won't make you feel good but I'll tell you anyway <laughs> I spoke to Lee Child. I think it was last year sometime. And I don't know what book number he's up to. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say 70. (laughs) Like a lot, like a lot. And he said every single time it's the same fear. It's the same. He sits down at his desk, can I do this? It's the same anxiety. Because you would think after 20 books, ah, cinch. I I know know. what to do. I know what the process is. I'll just get started. He said, absolutely not. So, Isn't it strange? It's not good news, but I think that there is an element, because I've done the same thing, you know, ask people every time, please tell me it gets easier. Please (laughs) tell me. And I think what in everyone answering, no, it never does. It's also that fear which creates that kind of heat and energy and the good stuff, I think, in books because we do go into it all thin-skinned and not not sure at all that we can do it again so that, so that every kind of word we get down is this, yes, you know, every word count we hit um, every time we fix a plot problem. I don't know what you call this and you might have a word for it, but sometimes my word was, would be... Well, no, I'm not going to use it. I'll let you find a word. I sometimes think authors have the most difficult job, right? Because you, how many years did you say? Four years on the mother? Four years for this one, yeah. yep. Yeah. So I was going to say suckers for punishment. Yes. <laughs> it's my word, but maybe there's a more technical term for that. I don't think that. there is. I don't think there you is a technical think? term for it at all. And I think or these people, so the first fear is probably handing it to the publisher, I would gather, right? So that's a, a huge fear in itself and to the editor. And then you've got the fear on release, right? Oh. And then you've got everybody out there having an opinion about it. Oh, 
And you know, the funniest thing about this, Cheryl, is that you forget all of these things. Well, you don't know it the first time around. I had no idea with Sky Lucky. And this time around, every handover is such a relief that you forget that there's anyone coming after it. So you're like, oh, yes, you know, the editor loves it. Like we've finally got it right. Oh, yes, you know, the first review, trade review comes in and it's okay. And then honestly, still today, like I'm getting text messages from people can't wait to read the book. And I'm like, oh, don't you read it? Like, no. Please don't read it. And then you've got this other problem. If your first book flops, I mean, how awful to write a second book. I mean, the Uh. pressure and, you know, am I worth it? Am I this? Am I that? Now, if your first book does really well, then it's the same thing. Uh. Can I pull it off again? Can I, I mean, pull it, it off again? It is really a really tough gig. I really do think it's a tough gig. I can't cope with review. I mean, I got one. I think we were talking about this just off, off air. I got a um, a podcast review on iTunes this morning, and I can't function. You know, told <laughs> me that I didn't like teachers, and I love teachers, and so I can't function. And yeah. uh, how do you deal with criticism? Well, ah, oh, not very well. The same as everyone. I remember the first time round, I would give. I made my husband read out reviews to me like while well, I kind of had a pillow over my head and also a glass of wine. But yeah. this time I really, I've really taken a lot from, I, I can't remember which um, Liz Gilbert TED Talk it is, but she talks about only being able to write kind of in the middle space. So if you're too high or too low, you can't. And what I've come to realise is that, yeah, bad reviews, you know, suck the very life out of you. Mm. Um, but also good reviews and that kind of buzz and no one should ever stop giving good reviews because they are lifeblood. But, I, you know, I said to my husband last night, he came home and I was weeping and he said, what's wrong? And I said, people are being just too nice. Like mm-hmm. I can't handle how nice people are being. And I think that that kind of elevated state that you're in, you can't work in that either. You know, that's that's as bad for you. And so I think that idea of being kind of independent from both the criticism and that big, puffy, you're amazing stuff, you have to be able to um, take both with a grain of salt, you know, kind of leave both mm. behind and just say, this is me and my work and, um, and you know, t- try and keep your, keep your eyes on that. Mm. I really have found both to be um, to be difficult to deal with. 
Yeah. She is a mother. Yeah, <laughs> she yeah, is she a, mother. a mother. Talk to me about that. I mean, you know, could you have written this book 10 years ago? No, I absolutely couldn't. And it came out of this. Lots of people have quite delightfully compared the book or talked about the book with Alice Robinson's The Glad Shout. And it is very similar. And, and the... The hilarious thing is that when I read The Glad Shout, Alice and I were writing at the same time. She published before me, but, you know, I had a few ups and downs that meant um, my book took a bit longer. And when I read The Glad Shout, I I contacted Alice. I didn't know her then on Instagram and I said, oh, my God, Alice, I, I think I've written the same book as you. And we're now great friends and we've talked about it, but we decided our books came out of the same soup. You know, we had little kids. We were like, loving it and frustrated by it and couldn't believe where we had ended up. We were also really stressed about the state of the world and had questions about, you know, climate and the way that our governments were treating people. And out of that soup came these these two different books. And I think that that, like, I don't think I could have written about anything else in this period of having really two young daughters. Um, I don't think I could have written a book that didn't somehow allow all of those feelings out onto the page in some way. You know, I, I don't necessarily believe in writing as therapy, but gosh, there's an energy in it. You know, mm. there's, and also that that's the world I've been living. So, you know, part of the book, part of the book is asking the question, like how, how, how do we, how do we, take action for the things that we feel really strongly about. And, and I suppose one of the frustrations I had was that, and I think Mim says it in the book, you know, maybe I wanted to be a hero too, but I was doing school pickup, you mm. know, and mm. that's because our our daily lives at the moment, if you are the primary carer for children or the primary carer for anyone, is that, mate, you could have the biggest dreams in the world, but unfortunately they have to work around snack time. And and, you know, getting to basketball practice on time and, and all the other but delightful and infuriating little bits of your day. And so that was that was my life while I was writing this book. And at different times it would come out more heavily. But I think my, my, my dear friend uh, Penny Russon, who's a wonderful writer, she was a beta reader for me and, and she said really early on, Kate, this is a love story between between Mim and Essie, really, mm. primarily, you know, between mother and daughter. And that was so helpful for me because it allowed me to really, um, you know, there's is, those things that you that. know. Yeah, and you know these things about your book, mm. but you're not, you can't articulate them. Mm. And it allowed me to really take that as the heart of the book then. Mm. And, um, and, and that was really lovely to be doing at the same time as I have these two crazy, amazing kids. Yeah. Tell me, how do you then carve out time? I mean, because, you know, you know, they're both full-time jobs, aren't they? I mean, you know, raising children is a full-time job if you are the primary carer. Yeah, they are. So really interestingly, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure writers will have said this to you before. Basically, I wrote Skylarking in, you know, on the train on the way to uni and in snatched bits at, at night because I had much smaller children um, and I was doing uni and I was working part-time. By the time this book came around, I had stepped back from paid work. I'd really, you know, and very luckily had financial support of my partner to try and make a real go of it, of, of writing full-time. Did the words come any quicker or easier? No, they did not. They came slower mm -hmm. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and harder. But I think 
you know, I think, and and now for at least the next little while, I'm in the you know very privileged position for a writer in Australia to be able to work full time on on my next book. And I think what's marvelous about it is that I I now can do things like say, you know, I'm setting aside time for reading today, and that is really important. And I'm not and trying that's to like. Fun. Yeah, and that's work, and I'm not, yeah. not trying to cram the the kind of the reading in at night, and to be able to do things like the podcast, which so fuels my writing. So I feel like making I I'm really claiming it now as as my profession, which at the start I wasn't prepared to do. You know, I wasn't prepared to say mm. yes, I'm a writer. Mm. It's still such a terrifying thing. Whereas now I'm like, okay, you know what? Now I'm going to claim that. I'm going to step mm. into that space and say, yep, mm. I've done two now. This is what I want to do, and uh, and I, I can do it. But I really do work best as a as a binge writer. So I go away. I go away on retreats. I've I've been lucky enough to go to Baruna, Varuna, sorry, and Bundanon, and I go away regularly with my writers group, and and that's the way I work mm. best. And certainly COVID, you know, I'm in Melbourne, so I've still got I've got still in lockdown. <laughs> that's really uh that's I really just, <laughs> Yeah, I was just about to ask you about that. And my heart goes out to people in Victoria, although the numbers are going in the right direction. The numbers are going in the right direction. Which is great news. But talk to me about that because some of the authors that I've spoken to said, well, you know, it hasn't changed my life that much anyway because, I, you know, I've always worked from home. It's the life of a writer. This is what I've done. Yeah. But I think if there's more than one person in the home, that, that becomes a bit more complex, doesn't it? Yeah. I've been very lucky. We, we built a little writing studio. Um, for me that was finished just before the first lockdown. So that has been incredible. Um, I've been getting up, you know, 5.30 to, to get a, a kind of an hour and a half in before the, the kids are up and about and, and we're doing remote schooling. But also for podcasting and events, etc. it's been incredible to have my own space. I think the thing that I have missed most, Cheryl, and I am an extrovert <laughs> and a writer. I've and I, <laughs> I love the writing community. I love, I would always normally have one or two events on a week that I would be going out to at one of the Melbourne bookstores or festivals or, or talks. I just, I cannot get enough of, of that world and being in it and um, both lending my support to other writers, but just, just, you know, being in their space, having well, those conversations. Having the connection with the reader as well. There's not Absolutely. Like, you know, Absolutely. Really it's a very, very personal experience. I've travelled with authors over the years and the value you get from that is tremendous. Oh, exactly. So I think that has been a huge loss in terms, and I know other writers are feeling that in Melbourne mm. just and, and across Australia, not having that kind of the feeling of community. I mean, what festivals and bookstores have done in being able to, to create online events and virtual events is just extraordinary. And I think the most amazing thing, yes, is that so clever. every night of the week, basically, you can be in a literary event and that's Mm. been fantastic. So I really, and I really hope a lot of that stays Mm. to be able to go, okay, I'm going to this Brisbane event or this we're doing the same, Kate. We, we've got an event now every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock and I yeah. introduced those just one week before lockdown, I think, or the week of lockdown, uh, and we won't be going back. I mean, we're yeah. keeping those because also, too, what I've noticed with some of our audience, uh, and we've got over, you know, 240,000 on Facebook, a lot of them can't get to events anyway. Some yeah. of them, they're in remote rural areas and the value, that that's just another way of connecting. So I Absolutely. think live events will come back. But these will stay. They're here. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's I think that's so beneficial. And isn't it? 
isn't it? Gives Loving you just it. another vehicle, another promotional vehicle and another vehicle to connect with readers. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And to have, you know, to have, you know, be sitting in that with the Melbourne Writers Festival, you know, Anne Enright here on my Saturday night, I'm sitting back in my Ugg boots. I mean, amazing. Loved amazing. it. Love all of it. I toured with Anne Enright a few years ago. Oh, extraordinary but talk about someone that never she, apparently she when when I was touring or I don't know if this is still the case she hadn't watched television at all in 30 years so <gasps> yeah so when I introduced her to Rick Stein she'd never heard of him oh my goodness <laughs> is that how she gets the writing done yeah she's she hasn't had a tv forever Wow. And she's not a person to jump onto Facebook or Twitter or Instagram either. So she's, you know, kind of the real deal. She's so disciplined. But anyway, it was really funny because uh, Rick Stein wanted to meet her and I thought, oh, easy peasy. You know, she'll know him. And she's like, hmm, what do you <laughs> How refreshing. I'm sure he found that completely refreshing. He did. He loved her so much he didn't care. She's beautiful. I think she writes like, oh, I mean, she's kind of the modern-day Marquez, isn't she? Uh, you know what? I actually had, uh, I can't see it here in my bookshelf, but I, I kept um, The Gathering really close to me while I was reading, while I was writing The Mother Fault because there was something about the ending. It's about the last four pages that I just... Oh, I love it so much and it's an entirely different book, but I there was something about it tonally that I was just like, I that's the feeling that I want the reader to be left with, that I was oh. trying, you know, and I mean, I think that's the beauty of putting absolute masters up ahead of us and saying, you know, I'm, I'm writing towards that. I will never be that, but I, I'll be ambitious enough to say I'm writing towards that point. And, well, I uh, think you should yeah. never say never because I think you're a beautiful writer. And I oh, think thank you, Cheryl. I, I seriously do. I think you're on your way. Tell me what you're working on now. Oh, I have such hilarious pictures. I, I got pinboard put up on all over the studio so that I could put pictures up. So I'm work. I'm going back to historical fiction for my next mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. and uh, it's based in a, a, a real place, a an old slaughterhouse in on the edge in the western um, part of Melbourne. And so I'm I'm writing about women and unions and meatworks, and I'm utterly loving it. I've got pictures of young Marlon Brando up over there. Oh, I've got... That's a good excuse. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I, I actually got quite a few of a young Marlon Brando up. So when your husband walls. walks in, you just say, well, that's research. It's research. Absolutely. Yeah. It's research. Um, yeah, but it's just, you know what's fun? It was so, it was wonderful working on, on kind of writing a dystopia. Um, not that I intended to do that necessarily, but I did need to push it out into the near future in writing The Motherfold. And it involved ex- an enormous amount of research as well to do that. Um, oh, yeah. But also the blank page. I mean, the possibilities were endless. I could go anywhere and that was kind of paralysing at times. Whereas going back to historical fiction, I'm like, yep, love it. I go into the archives. I pull out all the little bits of research that I need. You know, I plaster them over my walls and I feel like I can't fall too far off off the, the road on that, which is a nice... It's nice to switch back and I wonder if I will just keep doing that forever, you know, just, just switching between whatever the story needs. And and uh, and are you one of those people where, you know, you get the idea, you get the uh, seed of the idea and then it's just in your head before you start writing? How, how does that process work for you? Yeah, so so the mother fault started as a, a question and a couple of lines I wrote down on a document just as I think Skylarking was coming out or before Skylarking was coming out, actually. And I, I called the document, do not open until Skylarking is finished. 
<laughs> because I had it, you know, I had yeah. this little seed of an idea and I thought there's, there's something here. And I think I love that idea of, you know, a good idea if, if you've got it and that's the right thing to be working on. It's like a magnet. And then everything just starts being drawn towards it. And you're like, oh my gosh, that fits. And wow, that's what I'm thinking about too. So all this stuff, the geology and um, climate crisis and mining and all the things that became part of the mother fault just you know, obsessed me at different different parts along on the track. I did try and be more of a a plotter for mm-hmm. the for the mother fault. Um, I I did some I did some work with the wonderful writer Tony Jordan, uh, who's oh. also an incredible teacher and mentor. Isn't early she on, yeah, and wonderful. she she was great. She said, "Kate, you'll never have trouble making kind of sentences beautiful on on the page. That's you'll be fine with that." But plotting, if this is what you're stressed about, plotting is going to be the thing that, that bothers you forever. And so this, the mother fault really was my attempt at going, okay, I'm I'm going to work out how to do this. Like I'm going to look at screenwriters. I'm going to look at people who, I'm going to look at crime writers. I'm going to look at films. I'm, I'm going to go back to McKee and Michael Haig and all of them. And I'm going to really look at how it works and I'm going to try and make it work. And of course, that sounds very easy. You know, it, it took four years to do all these things and to pull it apart and put it back together. But you know, so so I was I was really concentrating on that uh, for this book. Uh, what I did do, which has been amazing, is that I journaled the whole thing. So I've got a I've got a one hundred and fifty thousand word document, which goes from basically the first day I started writing the mother fault to to now. I'm still you know, writing things in. Oh my goodness, I've got an interview okay, with Okay, hang on, hang on. <laughs> uh, I, this needs an ex... I've not come across this yeah. before. Okay. okay. Can you explain that you're writing about the writing? Yeah, I'm writing about the writing. And why I did this, Cheryl, is because exactly when I was doing things like I'm doing with you right now after Skylarking, and I realised that what what authors are asked to do when their book comes out is to to create a story of the book. And what really bothered me was that I couldn't get it right. Like I forgot the order in which things happened and I didn't, I couldn't remember when I lost characters or when an editor came in or, and, and it bothered me so much. So I thought, okay, well, next time I'm going to write it down. So what this document is, it's so unwieldy and it nearly broke my last computer. I basically, it's dated and every day I wrote lists. I put all my research in it. I, you know, there's a, a terrible part midway through this kind of last four years where I parted ways with my publisher and um, I was looking for a new one. And, you know, it's just, it's it's thousands of words of self-loathing and, and, and fear that, okay, this thing will never get published. And it's amazing. I can see, you know, I did an incredible mentorship with, with Charlotte Wood also midway through this, writing this book. Wow. And in the first pages of the, the document, I've got like, Imagine if I could talk to Charlotte about this. Imagine if I could talk to Charlotte Wood. Then halfway, you know, a year and a half later, halfway through the book, I'm like, oh my gosh, Charlotte Wood said yes, she's going to mentor me. So it's just, it's been, a, it's a magic document. I'm, I'm so glad I've got it. And also now for this part where I have to go back and start thinking about the process of writing the book and the themes and, and all the rest of it. And I am, as so often writers are, already involved in a new project, so that's where my brain is, to go back and to be able to see my writing on the day where I thought I'd never finish it or the day where, you know, Pippa Mass and my agent said, yeah, I'd like to read it, you know, just this this exhilaration you can see on the page where I've gone like, oh, my goodness, she wants to read it. Yeah, it's been it's been magical. I'm so glad. I recommend everyone do it. <laughs> 
I am, you know, I'm more impressed with you at the end of this interview than I was at the oh, beginning. And at I'm the so beginning, that I didn't under, I, I wasn't underwhelming. No, at the beginning you were up there, and now you're further up there. So you wrote about writing. I mean, I have to go away and process that. <laughs> hey, can't thank you enough for your time today. Loved our conversation. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl. So did I. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Traffic jams tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.